Hi, this is Dr. Crystal Hurd, author of The Leadership of C.S. Lewis, and you're listening to Pints with Jack. The creature was talking. It had language. If you are not yourself a philologist, I'm afraid you must take on trust the prodigious emotional consequences of this realization in Ransom's mind. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 10, First Contact. Out of the Silent Planet, Chapters 9 and 10. Welcome everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we are reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm David, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts Andrew and Matt. And this season, we find ourselves among the stars reading through the first of C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. Today's episode title is named after the 1996 Star Trek movie, First Contact, where the Next Generation crew travel back in time to defeat the Borg and ensure that First Contact takes place between Earth and the Vulcans. And I chose that title for today's episode because in our chapters today, Ransom himself makes First Contact with a hitherto unknown alien race. So on today's show... We'll find out what to do if you bump into an alien on an unknown planet. And we'll also find out the surprisingly practical benefits of being a philologist. But before we get to that, gentlemen, how are you? Well, Matt and I are both a little (laughs) under the weather. Um, Yes. We're doing fine. This is one of the perks of doing a remote podcast. We can carry on and I am safe. Yes. (laughs) Andrew, though, you have to tell everyone because now they're going to get this released significantly later, but you have something around your neck that looks new. I do. I do. So a week ago today, I was ordained to the priesthood in uh, in Christ's holy uh, apostolic church. It's February 1st, everybody, just so you know. Yes. So last Wednesday on my sister's birthday, and uh, it was a glorious, glorious ceremony. And Professor Kate Sonderager from Virginia Seminary came down and preached an incredible sermon um, and we debuted the uh, the uh, sonnet that Malcolm wrote for my ordination uh, with music, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis music from Phil Keggy. And uh, Rowan Williams wrote a blessing, and we had that on a takeaway card. And and uh, so it was just, it was glorious. And the next morning, I jumped on a plane and went to the Mere Anglicanism Conference uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, met a number of listeners. So it was great to see them, hung out with the lesser-known Lewis guys, hung out with the... Uh, uh, with the Inklings Variety Hour folks, um, connected some with the Davenant Institute and maybe doing some writing for them. So, um, And then came back and then celebrated my first four masses on Sunday, which was transformative. I mean, mm-hmm. to be able to handle the holy things and to say the prayers and declare the absolution and to have Christ's body in my hands and to say those prayers and to distribute the, uh, the elements. It was, it was fantastic. So isn't there such a beauty to the sacramental life? Like we haven't talked about that in a while because that's not really been brought up into this book, but I just love the sacraments themselves and in the gifts they are, the antidote they can be to so much sin and suffering. Yeah, absolutely. And you get to administer stuff. I get to do that. The liter- I'm just falling in love with the liturgy. And I was talking with another priest who um, had just been priested, I've said that that there's something different that happens when you become a priest. And I feel some kind of ontological vocational shift. It feels like I've kind of arrived into a large room that I've been intending for, for, for a lot of years. Like a room in revelation or something, you know? I don't know. It just, it's, it's like, this is, this is where I belong. I love it. And have you found that holy places are dark places? Um, well, they were long before. Um, because Till We Have Faces is Lewis's best book. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, uh, just today, um, it'll, be a, it'll be a while um, out there for a while, but just today, uh, Brian Zhang from the That'll Preach podcast released uh, my interview with him about Till We Have Faces. So we had great fun. Oh, and here's the flex for today. And for people that can't see it? Oh, that's a Lord of the Rings thing. It's a map of Middle Earth. On a mug. Took me a second to notice that. Yeah. I love it. I got, look at mine. I got this from a Christmas gag gift thing. You guys know what TV show that is? Oh, yes. It's it's named after me. Huh? That's how you pronounce the name. (laughs) 
For those at home, Matt's mug has a picture of a homemade sign on it which says, Believe. I'm super confused right now if you guys can see my face. It's Ted Lasso. Yeah. How's that have to do with Andrew? That's my name. <laughs> literally, Lasso is how you pronounce it in Spanish. And oh, it means- I'm literally focused on Andrew to Ted. Like, Ted is not <laughs> short for Andrew. This is not adding up in my head. I am so confused right now. No. Lasso, Lasso. Ah, yes, it's Ted Lasso. It's lasso in Spanish, and it's um, ribbon or bow, or they talk about the lasos matrimonios, the matrimonial bonds. So mm. that's what it, that's why we where we get our word lasso. You mentioned the that'll preach podcast where you were talking about till we have faces. The day that actually came out, the night before, I'd been leading a book club with my brothers-in-law, and we've been going through till we have faces. And it was really funny listening to you talk about that the following day. I've realized that now after the years of podcasting we've done together and the fact that I've listened to all of your talks, I think I can pretty much repeat your basic presentation for Till We Have Faces verbatim. You probably can. You probably can. And it would, it would behoove you so to do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I even make the, the same mistakes as you, claiming that it's Lewis's best work. Okay. <laughs> oh, by the way, I think you met the Lamppost listener guys, not the lesser known Lewis guys. No, no, I'm sorry. That's right. Um, the lamppost listener guys. Yep. And I've been in touch with the lesser guys. So much networking. <laughs> yeah. Great to hang out with those guys though. Well, one thing I've done since we last recorded, I've had my bottom two wisdom teeth out. Oh, I didn't know that. It was actually not that bad. That seems less than pleasant. Well, I got put under and that cost me $210. And as a father of a nearly two-year-old, that was well worth every penny. A $200 nap, bargain. (laughs) There you go. That's pretty cheap for anesthesia too. Yeah, no, I thought so too. And then um, some pain for you afterwards or pretty good? Nah, pretty minor. And, uh, you know, I've been trying to experience that whole uh, Charles Williams coherence stuff. Oh, yeah. So, (laughs) yeah. That's good. No, I have a parishioner. I just went to the dentist for uh, for cleaning in the last couple of weeks and um, have a parishioner who's got some dental issues. And so I offered that discomfort and pain up in hopes that the parishioner's teeth uh, or pain would be reduced. So I told Marie I was offering it up for her sins. She didn't thank me. Strange. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder why. Well, in today's text, Ransom enjoys some alcoholic beverage mixed with water. So I'm breaking my own rule and mixing some water with my scotch, which today is Ashentoshin. Okay. What are you guys drinking? Tea. And I'm drinking coffee. Sorry to say. No, totally fine. Last two nights, though, was with the last two interviews with Michael Christensen and Junius Johnson, we were dipping into the Kalila. So I thought I'd give it, give it a break, especially I'm going to go <laughs> to the doctor after this for some antibiotics. So. That's that's your number one, right? That's like Macallan, Lagavulin, and Kolila. Those are our three. Um, you know, the 12 is actually not... Uh, my number one, if I had it in supply, would be probably Lagavulin 16 hmm. um, or a much nicer Kalila. And I have a half a bottle left of the, the nice Kalila from, that I got in England. Is that like an 18? Something like that. Yeah. Okay. Really effervescent. So Nice word. Nice word. Well, as Ransom learns a new language in today's episode, we'll be cheersing in Russian. Nazdarovia. Uh, which Patreon sport are we toasting today, Andrew? Today we are toasting Andrew Thomas, uh, who sent us a one-off donation to start the year. So, gentlemen, to Andrew Thomas and to his kind generosity, and may the Lord repay him many times over for letting his generosity be known to us. So, Nazdarova. Nazdarova. Nazdarovia? <laughs> I'm almost done with my tea already. At least I'm glad to know that when I'm almost done with my scotch in the beginning, it's nothing to do with the drink. I just drink everything fast. <laughs> ah, okay. Keep telling yourself that, Matt. <laughs> Before we jump into today's text, here is my 100-word summary of the story so far. While on a walking holiday, philologist Elwyn Ransom stops at a house where he's drugged by two men, Western and Divine. He wakes up on a spaceship traveling to a planet which his captors call Malacandra, 
and he discovers over the course of the voyage that they plan to give him to aliens called Sorns, probably as a human sacrifice. Upon landing on the planet, Weston and Divine try to hand him over, but are attacked by some water creature, and Ransom escapes in the confusion. After fleeing for some time, Ransom falls asleep, exhausted by a stream. So at the start of chapter nine, Ransom wakes up to daylight and a little damp from sleeping by the stream. How's he feeling? <laughs> Honestly, is what we've seen in a lot of different stages when he seems to wake up from in the spaceship to, to here. There's a still confused. Not a morning person. Yeah, he's not. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to put that. Uh, there's this inner voice that seems to continue to be there. Uh, and he even thinks that he could potentially be another person or there could be another person there. So confusion. Yeah, there certainly is that. Yeah, he remembers what happened the previous night, but as though it happened to someone else. And did you notice he also experienced a kind of morbid regret regarding his flight from his captors? Because if he hadn't have fled, he might have been put out of his misery by now and killed. Yeah. He's not thinking all that sensibly. Um, and uh, before long, he does something that helps to bring him back to his senses. I just want to note that both in Early Prose Joy and in Surprised by Joy, Lewis talks about having kind of an out-of-body experience when he's near death um, during the war. And this seems to echo some of that language. He's, he's dissociative. He doesn't know kind of who he is. And early on in the chapter, uh, it says, for the first time, a suspicion that he might be dead and already in the ghost life crossed his mind. That phrase, for the first time, is actually worth conjuring with. Paul Ford, in his magisterial book, um, The Companion to Narnia, notes the phrase for the first time, and that usually signifies some kind of spiritual sea change in the character's life. So Edmund, for the first time, began to um, feel sorry for others. Eustace, for the first time, begins to feel alone and lonely. And both of those lead to some repentance, lead to um, kind of a turning around. And so I was surprised after reading that and forward to find this phrase here and out of the silent planet as well. And that mention of thinking that he's a ghost will remind us of Susan, who after Aslan's resurrection says, Aslan, are you a ghost? Which is exactly the opposite of what he really is. But so we've got some of these other echoes. Of course, all of those other books are still ahead of Lewis. And so this is one of the first times that for the first time is used. Um, and it seems to tick off something, uh, you know, kick off something in Ransom's experience. I was all ready there to take a sip. I thought you were going to till you have faces, but let's push on. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the first time, I won't mention till we have faces Lewis's best book. Well, speaking of sips, Ransom himself is really thirsty at this point, And so he decides to try drinking the water from the stream. He had been putting it off. He wasn't sure if it would kill him. And it tastes actually rather good, and his wits start to come back to him. And the text says he was quite aware of the danger of madness, and applied himself vigorously to his devotions and his toilet. And we've already mentioned some of Ransom's dark thoughts, and he has another one. He wonders if he's actually already mad and in England in some sanatorium somewhere. And in an attempt to stave off this madness, he focuses on his morning prayers mm -hmm. and the task of having a wash. Mm -hmm. And... and it, this reminds me, I went meant to go looking for this, but I couldn't find it briefly. Doesn't Lewis say somewhere, I think to Arthur Greaves, to do your best to not allow yourself to go mad? Does that ring a bell? It doesn't, but, you know, I've got the books up, so I'll, I'll pull that and see if I can find it. Well, while you're doing that, how does Ransom try and cope with these continued intruding thoughts? Well, what he, part of what he does is he cares for himself physically and he cares for himself spiritually. Um, and, you know, years later we find in Screwtape this kind of combination of the animal and the angelic that is in humans. And so I think that he's very wise. And he drinks. <laughs> Cheers to that. Yes. But uh, thirst in Lewis is often a real harbinger of something really about to happen. And, and drinking and slaking one's thirst uh, can be revelatory. It certainly is true for Jill uh, when she comes to the lion and he says, there is no other stream, you know, echoing our Lord. 
thirst certainly appears in Till We Have Faces. Um, and thirst, the need for thirst is what takes Orwell out of herself and affords her some vis vision. So attending to thirst is a, is a healthy thing. Hmm. And after that, he starts physically moving. He goes, he starts to walk. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what this made me think of? Honestly, the, the modern concept of mindfulness and like when you focus on breathing or you focus mm -hmm. on mindful walking, it takes you out of your head, which is literally what he's kind of describing here. Let's let the thoughts pass, physically move, let them roll over, stop just lingering with them, letting them take root. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Mm. It did make me wonder whether or not he had developed that strategy during World War One, mm. when he was in the trenches and under this tremendous stress, whether he also then learned to stand still mentally and let these worries roll over his mind. I would be surprised if he isn't in some ways recalling his experience and maybe even exercising some of the, um, the post-traumatic stress that he had been under um, by by having ransom at a life or death in a foreign land, not knowing what he, you know, can do, um, kind of express some of that. So I think we're onto something there. Well, with the issue of thirst solved, he now sets about solving the problem of food. What does he try to eat? Well, he starts on the trees, right? Mm-hmm. But he can't swallow it, and so he just uses it like chewing gum. But he says he does find that comforting. I think again, it's connecting into this physicality and uh, reassociating himself with his body. Well, and I think that there's almost this, um, he's almost nursing, hmm. right? Um, it's this, you know, it's, it's like a baby with a pacifier. Right? Mm. Um, so he's drawing sustenance from the earth, from the, from the land in which he is, even though this is Malachandra and perhaps not the most feminine of all, um, of all the planets. What, what, what do you guys make though? So can step back and put this into the broader context of what we read so far. Is there a deeper meeting here that Lewis is trying to communicate, or is this just as simple as you're on a foreign country with foreign creatures that are kind of monstrous? Of course, you're going to be freaking out to the level of delusion, kind of suicidal thoughts that you saw, needing self teething, focusing on like, is, is there something more here, or is it really just Lewis is really trying to overplay how incredibly dramatic this shift is from what he was used to? I think that's what I would say. If you were dropped into a, an alien planet with alien people and you don't know if you're going to starve to death because there's nothing even for you to eat and you've been kidnapped by your own people, you've encountered monsters, I think you'd freak out pretty heavily. And if, you under, if your understanding is that the, you are there to be a human sacrifice to those monsters, mm. which mm. is how the, the humans understood what was going on. I guess that's probably what I was struggling with a little bit. You get this dichotomy of this beautiful prose, this beautiful landscape, all this stuff, and then all of a sudden this, and it just feels so extreme because um, it didn't seem like this was building to this per se at some points. There's just like, oh, I'd really love to be there actually. And at other points, now maybe that's just because we're outside reading this, but. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the, the juxtapositioning of the beauty of Malacandra with Ransom's own thoughts, it reminds me of another book where somebody imagines that almost the entire landscape is saying, why should your heart not dance? And yet they mm. stuff it down and they choose to focus on the negative. I forget the name, but let's move on. Well, you know, <laughs> it's one of his lesser known books. <laughs> and, and the invitation to dance, the invitation to beauty, right? And that's the thing. And we see it in the verdant climate until we have faces and elsewhere. And Alistair McGrath and Peter Kraft and Simon Horbin, Michael Ward, they were talking a fair bit about beauty as the, the thing that we're longing for. And so this physical beauty and this invitation not to worry um, is a true invitation. And that's the invitation that Orwell refuses and that actually blinds her. But having done his devotions in a way that Orwell would never know how to do, Ransom, I think, is more amenable to the possibility that I'm going to risk eating and drinking. And then at the end of the chapter, we find that he takes certainly a tremendous risk. Mm. And if you recall, the first thing that he actually learned about Malacandra was that it was beautiful. Yes. Yes. And beauty is a signpost. Um, by the way, I, you know, I always give Susan a hard time because when she first hears the, the name of Aslan, it's as if a lovely smell or a beautiful strain of music had passed by her. I resent her that she let it pass by. But this sensual invitation 
to beauty um, is itself a, a, a valid appeal. And if Susan had gotten out of her head and and let the let the appeal to her senses, you know, be trusted, I think she would have been further down too. So I think he's connecting this, and I think he develops these things in his later fiction ten years later. Ransom continues his search for food, not really knowing what he's looking for, and he's not rushing in the same way that he was the previous day because. After all, what's the point? He's got no idea where he's going, so what does it matter what speed he arrives? And as he continues his journey, he encounters a herd of some kind of herbivore. So how does he describe these creatures, and what effect does the encounter have upon him? He describes them as giraffe-like, mm -hmm. so huge, long necks, and they're eating these leaves that are on top of these purple plants. So I'm starting to get this really unique picture of this world, purple plants, long-necked giraffes. That can also walk on their hind legs. Yeah. And yeah, you said it that way. I was going to say, and they can progress forward, which would be walking. <laughs> and they have a voracious appetite. I mean, they just, within five minutes, they just devour, it seemed like football fields worth of mm -hmm. these trees. But it's also, I think, a comfort because here's animal life, apparently dumb animal life, and they are consuming you know, vegetable product from, from the planet, I think that it allows him some hope that things are not as completely foreign, uh, even on a different planet, um, that, than he might think. They look different, right? And their necks are impossibly long, right? Because he's still grappling with the idea of the lighter gravity and how it makes things grow taller and skinnier. But he's finding these patterns and he's a philologist. He's a patterner and humans are patterners. And so he's being able to, he's less dissociated from himself. He's not split personality anymore. And he's beginning to see things that he can make sense of. And that was something, oh, somebody said this last weekend. If we're going to understand what we read, we have to know what it is that we're reading about. We have to have at least some inkling pun intended, of what, what's there for the mind to make sense. And he's beginning to make sense that these are creatures, they are not sentient, uh, that, that they eat, and that, that, um, that there are things to sustain life. And I think they all come as a sort of a... And they don't attack him, mm -hmm. right? They're not monstrous and, and, and fierce. So It's funny, he says that he might be able to share their food, but he doesn't actually think about, well, maybe he could eat them. Yeah. Uh, Weston and Divine would have figured that out. Absolutely. That would be quite a barbecue. <laughs> as the space giraffes eat the leaves up above, it reveals a view of what is described as greenish-white objects, which Ransom had seen across the lake at their first landing. They're described as really tall, solid pylons of varying heights, some with points, some bulbous shapes at the top. Speaking of, you've got to have to have some idea of what you're looking at in order to understand it. Yeah. What does he actually realize that they are? Very, very, well, that's not quite true, but I was going to say very strange mountains, a little bit different than what we would expect them to look like with our gravitational pull in the United, or in the United States. <laughs> Self-centered <laughs> of a comment I might just made there in Earth uh, at the silent planet. And so, yeah, there were some he described as, as typical pylons, which I guess is more what we would think. But then there was some that they were like a pylon that then turned into like a reverse pylon. They went like back outwards after going to a point, which would make no sense and be very dangerous of falling over. Kind of like a tulip. That's what I imagined. Hmm. Hmm. I like that. That's a good one. I think this would be a very hard movie to film um, and capture exactly. And I've seen lots of color art, cover art of folks trying to portray what the, the animals and the, the landscape would look like. And none of them, I think, come very near. When he was talking about the mountains, there's a wonderful passage I just want to read. He says, here he understood was the full statement of that perpendicular theme, which beast and plant and earth all played on Malacandra. So they're all very vertical. And he says, here in this riot of rock, leaping and surging skyward like solid jets. I, I just want to point out, I think riot of rock would be a fantastic name for a band or a festival. Oh my gosh. I think Jack Black should headline that. Yes. <laughs> I was thinking of Jack Black. Riots of rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, soon after he's seen these space drafts and identified the greenish white objects as mountains, Ransom's heart jumps up into his chest because he sees a sawn and he just runs for it. And 
once again, we get to see things from his perspective because he thinks that the sawn is moving stealthily mm -hmm. and he's certain that it was looking for him. Mm -hmm. Suspicious much? <laughs> Paranoid much? Well, just considering he says wizard-like as well, which that associates like a mischievous, devious, dark quality typically from the books that we read. And look at the language. Look at how it shifts. Pallid, right, with the sense of Paul, denuded plant tops, a giant stature, cadaverous leanness, mm. a long, drooping, wizard-like profile, a narrow, conical, hands or paws, um, thin, mobile, spidery, and almost transparent. The ineffaceable image was hardly stamped on his brain before he was running as hard as he could to the thickest of the forest. So immediately, and well, we find out later that all of this language reflects Ransom's fear, not so much the reality of what a sorn is. Isn't it interesting? Am I correct? With this statement, I'm trying to think back to everything we've been presented at this point. Almost everything has been decently kind from the trees you're eating haven't really been that negative. They self-soothe them. The water was like really refreshing and fulfilling. The gravity was less. The only negatives are like Weston and Divine. Maybe a sea creature that came out that looked a little aggressive. It, the evidence seems to suggest you should give the benefit of the doubt to this place. Um, yes. But he just hasn't yet. Well, it's the Lucy, you know, it's the mm -hmm. Lucy and the professor. Yeah, it's been, I think, entirely benevolent. Uh, it's colored by his anticipation, I think. Yeah. So Ransom flees and he heads down to Lower Land and he arrives at a river. And we're told that the scene is very similar to that of his first arrival on the planet. And I think this is significant for what's about to happen because we're going to have something of a recapitulation. Uh, a, a replay of encountering alien life, but now there's going to be a different outcome because he stops by the water to rest and to drink, and then he sees this very strange creature come into view. How would you describe it? I thought he did a good job. A seal, an otter, some sort of, and even about the same size. Didn't he mention five, six feet, something like that? And seals and otters can get pretty big. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A cross between a penguin, an otter, a seal, and a stoat. Those are the animals that he mentions. Right. But, but not entirely negative. Round, shining, black, thing like a cannonball, puffing mouth, bearded with bubbles, um, gleaming black. It splashed and wallowed to the shore and rose on its hind legs, six or seven feet high. Thick black hair, lucid as seal skin. And so, yeah, it's not entirely negative it's curious and there's enough to attract and enough to repel that uh that i think that we're set up for what well what in fact happens mm. and also ransom guesses that it's probably not a carnivore but he's not entirely sure yeah but something momentous then happens which shocks ransom yes why is his mind blown because the creature was talking it had a language if you are not yourself a philologist, I am afraid you must take on trust the prodigious emotional consequences of this realization in Ransom's mind. A new world he had already seen, but a new, an extraterrestrial, a non-human language was a different matter, and he already starts thinking about writing a bestseller. <laughs> it's so nerdy. It is. <laughs> the lunar verb, a concise Martian English dictionary. Yeah. You can see what gets him excited. It sounds just like Tumnus's bookshelf. Right? These kind of speculative things. Mm. Is man a myth? Is man myth, yeah. And Ransom says that he'd never thought of creatures on this planet having language, which is quite surprising. Why do you think that is? I think it just fits with this sort of naive, ignorant, I think is actually a better world worldview that's going on here. Uh, Weston Divine obviously are incredibly ignorant when they come into this, with, which we've already discussed at length. I think when we look at Ransom, he is as well, but he's much more open, cautiously open. He's he is experiencing it and is changing his worldview. But yeah, I think we assume out of the Silent Planet is the superior one, scientific method, all this stuff, much more knowledgeable. Of course, we'd have the language, and they wouldn't, uh, which is being proven very wrong very quickly. Well, and it's also the science fiction portrayal of the alien as the monstrous or imbecilic, 
right? His imagination has been trained. Exactly. Thanks a lot, H.G. Wells. Um, and he wasn't prepared to find equals um, and even friends. Lewis ends that section with the two creatures staring at each other. If this was a serialized TV show, that's when the break would have happened. Mm -hmm. uh, Lewis describes it as minute after minute in utter silence, the representatives of two so far divided species stared each into each other's face. Mm -hmm. And the two of them then begin to try and size each other up and attempt first contact. How would you characterize their initial interactions? I like the word cautious curiosity. Hmm. And I think that's intentional by Lewis. I think if I think back to, as this is released, I'm guessing that the Diana Glyer interview is going to be close, plus or minus a few episodes. And she talks about that. Because I asked her the question, you know, what does Lewis argue is one of the antidotes to this negative worldview that he's talking about? And I believe she talked about an openness. You really see that in the Ransom character and openness his entire journey and how Lewis is challenging us to approach reality with an openness and to receive it and to change and update our worldviews as we're, as we're presented with that. Whereas Weston Divine, you really see this in the back half of this book when they come back into play aggressively, are very closed off. Hmm. Well, and you find, I think, a hint in his physical position because on the previous page, um, Ransom dropped down on his stomach and drank. So he goes from being thankful to now cursing a world where cold water appeared to be unobtainable. <laughs> You know, wow. Okay. England. Great. You're not dying of thirst, you know, and now you're already sick of the manna and the quails. Mm -hmm. But he first encounters the sentient creature when he rises to his knees. Mm -hmm. And it's on her knees where Orwell first sees what's going on. Thank you. But it's on her knees where she gets insight and sight. She sees the house of love. Literally, the house of love when she's on her knees at the water. So maybe a humble, cautious curiosity? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's He's getting over himself to some degree. And remember what Lewis says about friendship. Friendship isn't about the other person or the relationship. It's about the thing that they have in common. And he's so fascinated with language. He's willing to kind of get over himself. He's not thinking about himself. You see it described as almost a, a kind of courtship. Mm. Um, it was more than curiosity. It was like a courtship, like the meeting of the first man and the first woman in the world, which we'll see in the next book. But it's this encounter which produces a relationship of love. And sorry for the spoiler alert, but, but, um, but there's a friendship that develops out of this. But Ransom is humble enough to be open to it and he can see that there are some possibilities. And I think that that's an excellent lesson for all of us. He discovers that there's at least one other creature on this planet that also has language. Yeah. What? You two? I thought I was the only one. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's actually the creature who really initiates the contact. What does he do? This is quite comedic, particularly from Ransom's point of view. Yeah. I was just going to say he gives a shell with water and gives it to him. But when you say it's quite comedic, I feel like I'm missing something deeper. <laughs> What's in the water? He doesn't just give him water. It's Puddle Glum's bottle. He takes <laughs> some black stuff, right? Um, yeah, he offers him a drink. Yes, it's water mixed with something else, yeah. which he distributed from what he used to think was genitals. So thankfully that wasn't the case. <laughs> yes. I did miss that part. Yeah. Water was turned into alcohol. When's the last time we heard that story? And only a couple of drops turned into alcohol. So they've. this is a different planet. We add a couple of drops of water to our alcohol. They add a couple of drops of alcohol to the water and it, you know, turns the whole thing. It's almost... Cana in miniature. Exactly. Cana in miniature. <laughs> yeah. But also this, this bit of hospitality... And it's a redemption of the earlier drink, right? The drink that poisons him, that he has to wait for, is now the drink that comes to him unasked for and establishes this, mm -hmm. this confidence between the two of them. And he also sees where the water came from. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. The creature tells Ransom the name of its species by tapping on its chest and making a sound. And then Ransom does the same. What kind of creature has Ransom met? The name is Har Haras. Hross. Hross. 
Hross. And in the next chapter, we'll find out the plural is Hrossa. Hrossa. But this is a throwback to the beginning of the friendship between Lewis and Tolkien. So when Tolkien and Lewis, they put Tolkien and Lewis both arrive to Oxford into their um, respective positions in 1925. And in 1926, uh, Tolkien starts the Coalbiter Society. Um, and Lewis joins in 1927. And the Coalbiters read Old Norse myths. Um, Icelandic is the same as Old Norse. And I, in Icelandic, there is the word hross. And predictably, hross means horse. So he's using a word that he has learned, you know, from, from Icelandic um, for a beast. From Tolkien. From Tolkien. The guy he's effectively writing the book for. Well, and I've heard an argument and I'm also, I can, I can also um, favor it to some degree. I think that maybe it's a blend, Ransom's a kind of blend between Tolkien and Charles Williams. I would also add Lewis in that. It's a mixed drink. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that there's, there's certainly some of that, but especially the figure that Ransom cuts um, in that hideous strength is kind of a Williams type figure mm -hmm. too. Sure. And the Thros seem to like H sounds. He calls Ransom Hman. And I think this is an allusion to Gulliver's travels because one of the lands that Gulliver goes to is filled with the Hwinims and they've got H's in everything. Hmm. And the section of the book that we're reading now, it gets very nerdy. And I'm absolutely sure that the Inklings loved it because Ransom learns a whole new set of words. He learns that earth, uh, the element, is called Handra. And he then asks about Malachandra. And in the text, he points out that, ah, so the H disappears after the C. You can see his philological mind at work as he's trying to understand the structure of this language. Mm -hmm. And he also hears the word handramit, noticing that it's handra with a suffix, but he doesn't at this point know what handramit means. Mm -hmm. But he then tries to ask about food and he can't reproduce the words that the Hross makes which is, I would have thought at this point, really worrying. Because if you can't even pronounce the noises that somebody else is making, you're not going to be able to communicate with them very well. No. But after a little while, he realizes that the creature wants him to follow him. And when he does, he discovers the guy's boat. Why is this significant for Ransom? Well, I guess maybe the significant thing is that this there, there's just another level of civilizedness to this creature. I mean, what do we got right now? We've got language, that's significant. Can craft and use a boat, food, alcohol. He can mix a good cocktail. He can mix a good cocktail. I mean, we're getting a picture of something that's not really a monster. I'm thinking more someone from the deep south like Georgia. Wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. Uh, uh, listeners, David and I both disavow and wave it all off. Absolutely. Yeah. All we need is a southern, every single country song has boat alcohol, food, and we just need a Chevy truck and we've got a country song. <laughs> okay. Mike, you also need a girl to dump him. Yes, absolutely. That's fair. But we do have the recipe for a country song here. Yeah. No, I get it. <laughs> Incidentally, the Swift, um, we know that Lewis loved Swift and um, Swift was an Irishman as Lewis was. So, yeah. So, he's finding things that are increasingly familiar and they must have come as a great comfort to him. But he does also note that it's only later that he even wondered what a boat would look like. Because one of the things that he recognizes in the boat is it, it looks very much like the ones we have on Earth. Mm -hmm. But what else could it have looked like? Yes. What else could a boat be? And that's got to be an Inklings conversation. You know, mm -hmm. if there were a boat in a different world and a boat with different gravity or whatever. And we knew that we know that Lewis and Warney were fond of boating that they had a boat it's still in the back of the kilns called the Bosphorus and that Lewis liked bathing. He did a lot of swimming and boating. He loved the water. And he said to one correspondent, uh, one child correspondent that when he gets in the bath, he goes in on his tummy like a, uh, or when he, when he <laughs> swims like a, a hippopotamus with just his nose above the water, you know, his nose and his head above the water. So, yeah. So watery climbs and watery transportation are, uh, are familiar to Lewis. Of course, he and Warney were allowed uh, to go over on a boat by themselves to cross the Irish Sea into Liverpool and to, to go to school um, fairly early on. I think they bought cigarettes too. <laughs> <laughs> Typical schoolboys. 
from the boat, the frost produces a plate covered in strips of something that's orange, which tastes like sweet beans. And what's really interesting is that once Ransom's hunger has been sated, he begins to worry again about the creature. Is he really as rational as he first appeared? Is he safe? Is there any relationship between this guy and the Sorns? Mm -hmm. And we're told that these fears would recur over the coming days. And Ransom realized that there was a solution to this. There was a trick he could do that would, that would stop these fears from appearing. Mm -hmm. What is it? And how do you understand it? Well, it's at versus along, right? It's looking at a thing versus looking along a thing. And so when he tried to make the sentient being look like a man, it looked monstrous. But when he stopped thinking of it as a human, but just as itself, right? When he tried to analyze it, it freaked him out, but when he just experienced it, it 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 uh it totally it, he was totally placated. Hmm. Yeah, nothing could be more disgusting than the one impression. Nothing more delightful than the other. It all depended on the point of view, right? And what we see in here depends a great deal on where we stand, and also on what sort of person we are. And after he finishes the meal, the Thrust gestures for Ransom to join him in the boat, mm -hmm. and apparently. This Ross gets into his boat in the same way that Lewis gets into his bathtub. <laughs> and the section is packed with a whole load of uh, boat vocabulary. So if you don't know, uh, you have to look up a bunch of it. But basically, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like a speedboat in terms of it doesn't sit very deep in the water mm -hmm. in that way. But Ransom wavers on this invitation. Why does he do that? And why do you think he ultimately accepts the invitation? I think this just goes back to what I mentioned earlier, that tension between the unknown and his intellectual curiosity and the fear. And you're just, you're kind of seeing this tug of war go back and forth. He's intellectually very open-minded, but he has these preconceived notions and that's creating caution. Well, and he only sees two options. And this is a, a, a kind of thinking that Lewis corrects, not good or bad, but good, better, best, bad, uh, worse and worst. And it says his whole imaginative training somehow encouraged him to associate superhuman intelligence with monstrosity of form and ruthlessness of will. And to get on the boat, he's surrendering himself perhaps to the Sorns at the end of the journey, um, at least as far as he thinks. But he's driven by something even deeper and his longing to learn its language and deeper still the shy, ineluctable fascination of unlike for unlike. Uh, the sense that the key to prodigious adventure was being put in his hands. All this had really attached him to it by bonds, lassos, stronger than he knew. <laughs> and this is the whole reason that Lewis wrote, or one of the, the, the fundamental motivations for Lewis writing science fiction is he was fascinated by the other. And, you know, what does um, Diggory say? Just think of what another world might mean. You might find anything. And so he's drawn by this curiosity and his head is guiding his, uh, guiding his experience, um, which I think is a, a, a fruitful sign. Mm. And they head out from the shore and they enter this huge expanse of water. If you recall, the water here is warm. So Ransom gets hot and he removes his cap and his waistcoat and he shocks the frost. It rather put me in mind of the scene in Return of the Jedi when Princess Leia removes her hat and freaks out an Ewok. Yes. Yeah, there's a sense of that too. But Ransom, he looks around and he sees groups of islands and water that's bordered by some trees and walls of mountains. And he realizes that he's in a flooded canyon. He thinks it's about 10 miles wide. And over the course of this journey, he discovers that the highland is called Harandra, and the lowland is called Handramit. And then something really cool happens. And I would love to see this bit in the movie. Mm -hmm. They enter a current and the boat is whisked along <laughs> at quite some speed. And it also starts getting rather choppy. <laughs> what happens to Ransom? <laughs> oh, this is great. Thank heaven he was a good sailor. At least a fairly good sailor. At least. Hastily, he leaned over the side. And then he says, the worst happened, not once, but many times. Yeah. <laughs> and he wonders if the Rosa vomit too. And he says, it is not thus that the first representative of humanity would choose to appear before a new species. 
but perhaps not a uh, not a bad way, you know, to to appear in some vulnerability. Although he does admit that he's losing all interest in Malacandra. He says that the distinction between Earth and other planets seemed of no importance compared with the awful distinction of Earth and water. Yeah. Well, they finally come into land and the Hross picks up his boat and carries it on his head and they descend a little bit further and rejoin the water. And as they continue, he learns more of the language and Ransom finds out that the Hrossa live on the Handramit, the lowlands, and the Saroni, which is the plural of Sorn, they live on the Harandra, the highlands. And as the sun sets, he sees a fire and they finally arrive at a community of Hrossa. Mm-hmm. When Ransom first hears that the Saroni live on the Harandra, what does he assume and what does that reveal about him? Well, he, he assumes Harasa are lower from like a cultural level than the uh, Saroni. They're more like gods or demons. And mm-hmm. I think it fits, ironically, I think this time he's probably more correct than not, <laughs> but that fits with his, his worldview. Well, he's definitely wrong because he's going to find out Saroni is the plural of Sorn and he's met them already. Right. So they're they're not gods or demons. I think it's just that Ransom looks at the Hrosa, and despite the fact that he's provided him with food and has a perfectly working boat, he just assumes that he's at a low cultural level, and therefore, if he's describing this creature that lives on a higher level, oh, that's just got to be some mythic superstition. Don't the Sorns aren't they the ones that are the only ones that can bring them to the gods? So they're they always struck me as slightly more. Intelligent, slightly more um, godlike for sure than Harasa. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but I'm going to push back. They are, they are, they're not higher in that regard because we're going to find out that the relationship between the Harasa and the Saroni and maybe some other creatures, it's not how we typically evaluate relationships. Mm-hmm. One is not necessarily better than another. People are better at particular things. Members of a body, as Simple would say. Absolutely. I'd say worth, not worth, but they're probably closer to the gods and the it's in dignity and worth, I'd agree. They're not higher or lower, but I'd probably push back on that pushback. Well, when we see the different roles, we find that they are absolutely complementary. And there's that great passage towards the end. When Ransom finally spends some time with a Sorn, he finds out what the different races feel about each other. And it comes in this, oh, that's a question for the Sorns. Or that's a question for the for the Hrosa, or uh, there's another race there too. And so it seems there seems to be a complementarianism to Malacandrian society that is um, that is really enviable. And like lovers, they find each other ridiculous. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. What I'm wondering, I think I've heard this before. You can think of it as people have described in heaven, and I don't know the theological backing with this, but. You have different containers and everyone is perfectly filled up as God intended. But some containers could be bigger <laughs> than others, but they're still perfectly filled up. So for like a dignity worth, they're living out exactly as they're intended. But so if I'm putting like an earthly, projecting an earthly standard, I will probably say some are bigger than the others. But but when you're in there, you would never actually do that because you're you're exactly you're saying the bodies, the parts, and the beauty and infinitely exactly as they were created. I, I feel like there's something similar with that. That kind of analogy could be used here a little bit. The theory about heaven that you're referring to, it's in relation to love, how somebody loved. So mm-hmm. it's not dependent upon what station they were in life, what their jobs were, what their abilities were. It was based purely on love. Yep. So I don't think that analogy works. I just meant that as an analogy because I do think there's a – well, never mind. We'll come back to Harasa Sorns uh, as, as yeah. we. Uh, oh, we will. We'll yeah. let the listeners take a poll on that one, and they'll <laughs> they'll come back to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love the kind of Ewokian um, encounter towards the end, mm-hmm. right? Where he the little whelps or puppies or whatever it is, you know, and he puts the hand on one and it scurries away. Um, so <laughs> there's and the language too uh, depicts this kind of safety in which Ransom finds himself. It is kind of surprising, though, that he does feel, well, it's not surprising that he feels overwhelmed, but the fact that he described it as a ghastly inappropriateness. He wanted men, any men, even Western and divine. And that's because he was tired, right? I certainly traveled in other countries where I didn't speak the language, and it can be exhausting, you know, to be an alien 
uh, in a land where everybody's familiar with each other. It's like starting a new job or, you know, but certainly like being in a foreign country and one just wants even the crassest speech or the, the most <laughs> banal advertisement, as long as it's in my own language. It's not really what he wants. What he wants is a rest. Mm -hmm. And as we've seen, when he cares for his physical needs, um, the other things kind of uh, seem to come right. So perhaps a good rest lesson for us as well. Yes. Ransom doesn't work well when he's tired or hungry. And as Ransom falls asleep among the Rosa, is there anything else you'd like to say before we call it a night as well? It's just such an intriguing um, and imaginative and creative process of, of thinking about what another world might be like. I love even, even early on his control of his prose as he's trying to portray this thing. And it seems maybe as I reread it now for, the, for a multiple time, um, he's being maybe a little heavy-handed for the language when things are dangerous and the language when things are beautiful. He's kind of guiding the reader. But still, he's, uh, I like the invitation to the other world. And, um, and I think that it achieved what Lewis was looking out to do. And we'll be testing Matt on his Malachandran each week, reviewing the vocabulary we've encountered so far in the book, uh -oh. in a segment that I'm calling Philology So Far. <laughs> and if listeners would like to learn along with him, I'd recommend going to pintswithjack.com slash dictionary, ah. where you'll find an alphabetical list of all the Malachandran words which we come across. Wonderful. And in true Matt form, I will study zero for this. Ah. <laughs> Well, David and I will just start talking about you in Old Solar and leave you to your own devices. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, before we wrap up, the audience question for this episode is, what's your favorite book or movie depiction of first contact between two alien races? Mm. Please feel free to email us at contact at pintswithjack.com. You can use the contact us form on the website or comment on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And I hear the call for final drinks, so thanks to all of our listeners, Patreon supporters, particularly our top-tier supporters, Matt, Jake, James, Erica, Marvin, Joel, Deborah, Amanda, Thomas, Bill, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. You're here. We pray for our listeners and all of our prayer requests on our Slack channel every Tuesday. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please check out our Malachandrian Dictionary on pipesforjack.com. There will be a test next week. <laughs> and please join us next time. When we'll be going further up. And further in. Nazdarovia. 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 <laughs>